Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies and in Literature, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Minnie Sawney, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Alvaro Santana Acuna, who is a sociologist and historian and currently teaches sociology at Whitman College. He received his MA in Social Sciences from the University of Chicago and PhD in Sociology from Harvard University. His essays have appeared in The Atlantic, Time Magazine, El País, El Mundo, and Nexos, among other media. We are here today to discuss a book which has had abiding success for the past 55 years. The book is titled 100 Years of Solitude, and Alvaro's book on it is titled Ascent to Glory, How 100 Years of Solitude was written and became a global classic. It's being published by Columbia University Press in August 2020. Dr. Alvaro, to begin, perhaps we can talk about your own trajectory and the genesis of this book. Right at the end, you tell us that though working on 100 years of solitude was something you might have wanted to do, a day of interminable rain in Boston helped you decide when you couldn't get Macondo and its rain out of your mind. So tell us first about your own career, how you've been plowing the sea, Arando el Mar, a term I laughingly used to describe your trajectory, and what led you to write this much-needed tome, which is a kind of sociology of the novel rather than a literary analysis. Yeah, uh, thank you, Mini. It's a pleasure to be with you. So thank you for the invitation to um, talk about my book. Um, so um, certainly, uh, I'm I'm happy to uh, address the first question. So uh, as as you know, I'm originally from from the Canary Islands in in Spain. Uh, right now, actually, very much in the news because there is a volcano uh, active in the in the island of La, La Palma. So and I and I grew up there, and the Canaries is a, is a very interesting place because it's in the middle of uh, Europe, 
Africa and Latin America, right? So the Canaries are located off the coast of uh, Morocco. So historically, it has always had this uh, beautiful uh, connection to Europe because the, the, the Spaniards conquered the Canaries right at the time when Columbus um, go to the Americas. And then geographically, the Canaries are in, in Africa. And historically, as I said, it has been this uh, area you need to go through if you wanted to reach the Americas for almost 400 years. So so then the culture of the Canaries is very much a uh, tri-continental uh, culture. And and we're actually discussing many uh, before the, the interview that, uh, that in the last also 50 years, uh, there has been a very important Indian community living in the Canaries as well. right? So it has been a very cosmopolitan uh, place ever since it was conquered. And, and, and Latin American culture is very present also in the Canary Islands. So when I was a, a little kid, uh, Garcia Marquez, the author of One of Solitude, was actually already a very important author. And uh, in high school in Spain, it's very usual that you read his works. So, and in my case, um, I remember reading his one of his first uh, uh, short stories. Uh, well, actually, not one of the first, but the, it was the first I read. It's a, a short story from uh, the 1960s, The Most Beautiful uh, Drawn Man, uh, which I read as part of an anthology of short stories by uh, Garcia Marquez, Cortázar, Borges, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, um, Faulkner, Gogol, and and I remember within that short story, I really liked it. I especially liked the title, uh, but I must say that I like other short stories better. Um, and then a few years later, I read uh, also No One Writes to the Cornell, uh, a very uh, impressive book, which I read uh, in my uh, late years in high school. And that certainly was a book that, that I, I, I was really... Uh, shocked by it because it tells the story, the strike story of this um, senior member of the, the the army, the Colombian army, waiting for decades to receive his pension. So, and then I I went on. I just I did my my um, my BA in history locally in the University of La Laguna, and then uh, I finished my, my BA. And to be honest with you, I wasn't re- really thinking about uh, literature as something I wanted to study. I was primarily a consumer of literature. I have always been, and I really like learning new languages so I can read literary texts in the original language. And then uh, I went on to... Um, uh, Start uh, went on and started my PhD in uh, in uh, history, but then I decided I want to stop it, and then I did my MA in the social sciences uh, at the University of Chicago, as you mentioned, and there uh, I started to interact with a lot of colleagues in uh, the the Romance languages uh, and literatures department, uh, especially my my colleague Mario Santana, uh, who is actually from the Canaries, no relation, just that we are both from the Canaries, and and there I I was interacting with a lot of um, colleagues who were interested in Latin American literature, and I realized that I actually have read a lot of literature, and also a lot of studies about how some of these works of uh, literature became so. Um, important. And and to my surprise, I find myself having these really uh, uh, wonderful and uh, deep conversations about Latin American literature, but it, 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 didn't, it didn't go beyond that until 
uh, the following year, I started my PhD at Harvard, and and I remember um, that uh, the the fall of uh, two thousand and seven was really rainy. It was my first time living in Cambridge, and it was raining one day after the other, and and then one day after you know, like several days almost of nonstop uh, rain, I was walking to the the library. And then out of nowhere, I was I was uh, hit by the thought uh, that I expressed out loud. Wow, wow! It rains like in Macondo, right? And 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 at the moment, you know, for those of you who have not read the novel, you know, Macondo is the the village where the the story of uh, one day of solitude takes place. And at a certain moment in the story, it rains a lot right, for a very long time, right? So this has become actually a very famous episode in, in the novel. And then when I said, whoa, it rains like in my condo, mm, it has already been like probably 15 years after I have read the novel, never really uh, went back to it except for you know having conversations with you know colleagues about Latin American literature and also at that time uh, I had not visited Latin America right so it's not that so that me citing that sentence didn't have a, a, a connection to the region so I wonder why I, I did that why did I make that connection between the rain in Cambridge and the rain in the novel and to my surprise that was the beginning of my my research even though I didn't start the project until uh, a, uh, a year later when I was talking to my uh, my advisor and then we were thinking about potential potential topics that I wanted to work on on my uh, for my my PhD, and and that's when I started thinking about the possibility that maybe I wanted to work on how uh, how works of art and cultural objects at large become classics. Because you know, at the time, I felt that that there was not the, the literature I was reading. I was not fully happy with the answers that they were giving to this question, mostly because in sociology. Uh, my colleagues want to answer that question from a sociological angle and then historians from a historical angle and then my colleagues in literary studies from a literary studies uh, angle. So what I tried to do in the book was precisely to merge uh, these three disciplines and then provide an interdisciplinary study in which I would address uh, that question. And then also, as you mentioned, uh, that this was also, empirically speaking, this was also a book that was very much needed because the research on classics and especially on One Year of Solitude is full of myths and legends, right? And I'm not, in the book, I'm not denying that myths and legends are necessary. So one of the, the arguments I make is that we really need to have myths and legends as part of the classics. In other words, let us think about a classic book that is not in one way surrounded by a myth or a legend, right? So then One Hundred of Solitude is certainly surrounded by these myths and legends. And why is that important? Well, because also if you really want to study how this novel was written or first of all, how it was conceived and then written and then became a global classic as I do in my book, you really need to, first of all, um, look beyond the myths and legends that... that uh, surround this novel, and that of course require me a lot of um, 
research. So uh, going to the original source instead of relying on secondary sources that maybe are more prone to follow or repeat some of these legends. So to really um, understand and get as close as possible to the primary sources. And that was a very long process. That was uh, over a decade of, of research. And, and the book you know, came out uh, about, a, about a year ago. Okay, let's talk about the book a little. Uh, in the book, you in your book, you deconstruct the fake news, as you've called it, about the success of the book and how it amassed its cult following. You deny that there is any single recipe to turn a work of art into a classic. And in pages that make fascinating reading, you say that many of the myths surrounding the book are things that Garcia Marquez was party to. In the end, as you point out, based on a lot of evidence, it was the cultural brokers, the literally cognoscenti and fellow writers of the boom, the ones you call the gatekeepers, the Spanish publishing industry and the Casa de las Americas, who made the success of 100 Years of Solitude possible. You return to this point of the literary forebears of Garcia Marquez many times. Give us a brief summary of the book and tell us about how the novel is an example of collective construction as well as the cultural brokers in the field of cultural production. Because I think this fact will be of news to many of its fans, and I'm talking in particular about India as well. Uh, it's been, you know, reviewed in Calcutta, uh, uh, which was till recently a left-leaning state, as well as Kerala, which has a left government. So these fans of Garcia Marquez are not uh, generally people from literature. So what you're saying could take them a little by surprise as well. So explain to us this point about cultural brokers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Mini. Um, so, As to Glory uh, is two books in one, in a way, because the the first part of the, the book looks at the imagination and production of the novel. In other words, how Garcia Marquez uh, was capable of imagining a novel like this, and then how he actually wrote it. So and and to do that, um, I I do um, several things. So the first one is to really investigate, and this is something that sociologists have not done um, often, which is to study the what I call the stage of imagination. In other words, what are the the conditions that makes it possible for an artist to imagine a certain work of art. And why is that important? Well, because we know, and this is not just something that happens to artists, it happens to uh, you know, people writing papers, right? And, and you know, having projects that sometimes you have an idea for, for a project and then you keep it there for a certain amount of time and eventually that project is not executed, right? It's not, it's not done. So um, you know, renovation of uh, something at home or you know, a paper that you're writing or an idea for a work of art. Right, so but that happens all the time. So we imagine things, or right? as I as I uh, say in the book, we are we human beings are imagineros, right? Uh, not in the sense of you know the the classic uh, meaning of that word in Spanish, but uh, but that we we have the capacity of imagining things. However, imagination is also a social. Uh, kind of action, and which means that sure we can imagine certain things, but uh, but I don't think that uh, say for instance 
ancient Romans were um, capable of imagining uh, rockets and to occupy Mars, for instance, right? So imagination is deeply historical and social, right? So then historical conditions and social conditions makes it possible for us to imagine certain things and not others. So what I do in the first part of the book is actually to try to uh, understand what was going on in Garcia Marquez's life in Colombia and in Latin America at large to really understand what what made it possible for him to imagine a novel such as uh, 100 Years of Solitude. And for that, one of the things that I do is, for instance, to track the origins of the label Latin American literature, literatura latinoamericana. Why? Because this was not a label that was around for a long time. This was a way of talking about Latin American literature that emerged in the 1940s and then became extremely important in the 1960s. And it really helped many of the writers in the region to really start thinking about what they were doing as um, a, a new kind of uh, literature, right? So, and that was really important to help them to start imagining that what they were writing was not simply, say, Argentine literature or Colombian literature, but more broadly, Latin American literature. And this happened when Garcia Marquez was growing up and coming out of age as a professional writer. So he really uh, absorbed all that uh, enthusiasm about uh, the region being able to produce its own, produce its own, its own literature. And then, of course, another thing that I do is to um, explain how he started to acquire the professional skills that were necessary for him to write fiction in the in the first place. And I talk about his training in journalism, how he learned from the craft of journalism techniques to write uh, stories. Right. Also, he's working. Um, Cinema, not many people know that Garcia Marquez was very interested in cinema and he was actually a film critic for a long time. He collaborated also with colleagues in the making of films in uh, Colombia as a, as a scriptwriter. Then also he went on to study montage in Italy. So he was really interested in what is it that cinema can teach us about the, the cinematic storytelling. And then another important area in which he was also learning skills, professional skills that he applied to his literary work was marketing. And that was, uh, that that may actually come uh, uh, across as a surprise for many Garcia Marquez um, or even, you know, people working in literature or just people interested in artists at large, because we don't actually think about marketing. And yet Garcia Marquez, like many of his colleagues, was doing marketing and he was uh, he was learning skills about how to market things to the public and this public was not uh was not uh, a public that uh, had already existed in latin america in the 1960s and more broadly in europe we have the emergence of the reading middle classes in other words we have the paperback revolution happening in the uk in spain in the, United, in the United States, in France, and of course, in Latin America. Why? Well, because the reading, the, the reading uh, was becoming a new habit of the, 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 the middle classes. There was also an expanding uh, higher education system in all these countries. So Garcia Marquez realized when he was writing for marketing that there was a, he was learning the skills 
of how I can talk in a specific way to specific audiences. And that was also another important area in which he learned skills. And then the final one that I talk about in the book, of course, is the, the usual suspect literature. So what is that he learned from Faulkner, from Hemingway, from Wolf, from some of the Colombian writers, uh, some of them historical ones, some of them contemporaries. So what were the skills that he learned? So he was profoundly influenced then by Anglo-American modernism as well as golden age literature from the 17th, 17th century Spain, like the age of Don Quixote, as well as some of the contemporary poets like Pablo Neruda, García Lorca, um, Gómez de la Serna, uh, Cepeda Samudio, his friend in Colombia, uh, uh, Salamea Borda, right? So uh, uh, a whole range of uh, authors he was reading. And also to address another point that you make in your question, he was not acquiring all these skills in isolation. And that's another thing that is really important. So Garcia Marquez from really early on developed the, the habit of talking about his work with colleagues and peers and, and, and friends and professional uh, professionals in the, the publishing sector. So then uh, from his very first novel, he was circulating the manuscripts among people who could uh, really give him um, feedback. And that also happened with 100 of Solitude, which was a, a, a book uh, that he wrote with the help of um, many people. Of course, he was writing that book in his room in isolation, uh, in solitude, so to speak. But he was also having this really extraordinary amount of interaction with uh, people via mail, right? So in the 1960s, uh, um, air travel became cheaper uh, and then uh, air mail was uh, quite, uh, quite affordable. So he was having, like today we have almost day-to-day um, um, -day, uh, conversations or current permanent conversations with colleagues via email. So he was also having these conversations via, via mail with colleagues in uh, France, in Spain, in the UK, and uh, Colombia, Argentina, and also phone calls. He was also talking to people about what he was actually doing. And then people in his inner circle, people who would actually come and check on the progress of the novel. He would actually, some of them would actually come to his place almost every night because they were close friends who would be just having you know, a couple of drinks, eating something, and then they would ask him also, how is the novel going? And then he would tell them, he they would give him feedback. So to capture this uh, collective construction of the novel, in the book I use the term networked creativity, right? So to really show how Creativity is not just the work of a single individual, but it's really um, part of um, a network phenomenon, right? In which we can really, uh, in this case, in the case of 100 of Solitude, we can really trace and we can see the influence of all these um, uh, friends and colleagues and peers, the influence that they had in the imagination or on the imagination of the writer and in the actual production of uh, the novel. So that's where pretty much... The first part of the book ends. Uh, I also write about mm, the actual production of the novel, the contracts, uh, the different options that he had on the table, how he physically wrote the novel, how many words he was writing every day, the different characters, different options, right? 
and how the different characters, different options were influenced by his network. And then the early reception. And here, one of the interesting findings, and I'm, I'm sure that we will certainly have a uh, chance to talk more about magical realism, is that today, uh, one of Solitude is perceived as the the classic novel of magical realism. This is a style that merges uh, descriptions of real life with magical events. So uh, magical realism has become uh, a genre that transcends literature. So it's something that we find in movies. So for instance, you know, uh, the movies of Guillermo uh, uh, del Toro, right? The Shape of Water, right? So Hollywood or The Life of Pi, right? So very successful films. And also in the arts at large, you know, ballet and theater. So it's really now a genre in its own. What is very interesting is that One Day of Solitude has been has been now or is perceived now globally as the style uh, that, um, or as the novel that helped to develop this style. And to be honest with you, one of the, the, the things that I found while doing the research is that no one, except for one critic, said that One Day of Solitude was magical realism when the novel was released. Right? So there's a really very interesting uh, process that I study. Is that, okay, how is it? then that 100 Years of Solitude became and was turned into a magical realist novel. And that's one of the, the things I explore also in the second part of the book, in which I, I, I write about how this novel became a, a global classic. And there, what I do is to um, really try to find as many references as possible that can explain to us how different audiences in different cultures, in different countries. So you mentioned India, for instance, right? So there are actually references about India. So how different audiences and different um, uh, organizations have appropriated one of solitude and then turn it into a classic. And for that, I, I introduced the notion of uh, cultural brokers, which you mentioned in your question, which what I want to do with that, that notion is to really expand beyond the traditional view of becoming uh, a canonical, or actually even more, a, a classic book. There's a tendency to think about that something becomes classic because is. Is something that is set by scholars or set by literary critics. And yeah, sure, they are very important. And they are important contributors to the, the consecration of a, of a work of art, of something becoming classic. Uh, but at the same time, we also need to take into account what other cultural brokers, right? And that includes you know, celebrities, politicians, revolutionaries, priests, uh, other artists, and common readers, right? And what I do in, in the book, in the second part, is precisely to trace how different cultural brokers in all continents, including Antarctica, I found a reference about someone reading One Honey of Solitude in the Antarctica, right? So how is it that all the different, this vast constellation of cultural brokers have appropriated the novel and then appropriated parts of the novel and make sense of it as something that becomes meaningful for them. So they recall then uh, parts of the book. And that's really interesting because it's, it's an ongoing process. So it's not something that it stops, but rather I tend to think about the classic as uh, uh, an ongoing contract. And what do I say that? Well, because one of 
uh, the, the you know one of the ways in which we can see that this process is ongoing, for instance, that uh, Disney has just released a movie I have not watched, uh, but it's a, it's a Colombian-based movie called Encanto. And to my surprise, one of the elements that is on the cover, uh, or oh, sorry, the, the poster for the film are yellow, yellow butterflies. And this is an image that comes from Wahanui of Solitude, something that has become a cultural reference around the world, right? So one of the ways in which also cultural brokers around the world connect to the novel. And maybe, you know, what's going to happen is that many kids, many hundreds of people are going to actually want to watch this movie and they they are not, they don't know that the yellow butterflies come from one year of solitude. And yet they may, they may love, they may actually love that. They may dislike that, but they're going to expose to something that has traveled beyond the book and then has entered a Disney movie. And this uh, this you know a really beautiful example of how elements from the novel are appropriated by a cultural broker, in this case Disney, and then gives it another life. And what I do in the book is basically to look at many of these examples and then to explain how the appropriation takes place. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Okay. We go on to the next question. <clears throat> now, uh, <clears throat> uh, his peers ascribed, Garcia Marquez's peers ascribed to themselves and also gave him the label of cosmopolitan Latin American writer because unlike writers such as Arguedas, he drew U.S. writers like Faulkner into the Latin American orbit. So they also said it's not a collection of national literatures, but a literary tradition built on the existence of a Latin American nation, as you also said right in the beginning. Initially, as you say, he was fit into the category of rural cosmopolitanism. Later, his book was described as a gothic novel in the tropics. And it seems that the novel managed to fit in various categories that were reigning trends. Tell us about Garcia Marquez's signature style of magical realism, which you already have, and you've also talked about the imagination. But uh, what I'd like you to emphasize now is what it signified and what was uh, his skillful use of language that adapted to the various epochs described in the book. 
uh, that's quite a marvel in 100 years of solitude which you yourself have drawn attention to so maybe you can answer the last part Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and that's also a very important question uh, because, as I was uh, briefly mentioning before, so uh, Garcia Marquez wrote One Hundred of Solitude in uh, between 1965 and 1967, and by then he had he had already uh, written an, uh, other books. Uh, three novels and a book of short stories. And and when you look at the reception of his early work, what is really striking is that even though all of the elements that we see later on in One Hundred of of Solitude are already there, including what later on became known as magical realism, what is really interesting is that critics and readers did not perceive that as magical realism, not even as Latin American literature, right? Because as I said before, in the 1950s and 60s, there was this ongoing process by which books produced in different countries were elevated to a new category, a new way of thinking about them as Latin American literature. So what was really interesting is that Garcia Marquez in his first years was not perceived by critics as a Latin American writer, but primarily as a Colombian writer, as a very young and talented Colombian writer, uh, and also someone who was very attached to things about uh, the countryside, the rural, and the violence in uh, the rural areas, right? And what is quite remarkable is then, at the beginning of the 1960s, literary critics like Angel Rama, for instance, a classic, a classic uh, critic who was really into, um, so he really wanted to develop a new way of thinking about the literature in your region as being something beyond uh, national boundaries. So I started to read works um, by Garcia Marquez and by some of his contemporaries as not simply being works of Colombian literature. Of course, it was Colombian literature, but it was something more. And so was the case of Fuentes' literature, Vargas Llosa's literature, even Borges' literature. So the critics did really a very nice job in terms of trying to find something that connected all these works of literature uh, beyond the, the national. And one of the things that happened is that in, in a matter of two, three years, Garcia Marquez stopped being labeled uh, a cosmopolitan, sorry, a, a rural uh, Colombian writer or even, you know, some kind of gothic or phantasmagoric, as one critic put it, a writer. And instead, it was reinterpreted as a, a, a rising voice of the new Latin American novel, right? So it was basically being turned, relabeled as a Latin American writer, right? And that was also very important because Garcia Marquez was reading what these critics were actually writing, see? And then a very interesting thing happened also in his brain is that he started to realize that, oh, well, maybe this is actually what I then the way I need to conceive my works has to be Latin American, right? So One Hundred of Solitude then is a novel in which he more purposely, right? So we're basically now talking about the imagination being shaped by literary criticism at the time. So he so he consciously then tried to write 
100 solid to uh, something that was also Latin American. So he was more aware of what he was writing before was not just simply Colombian, but Latin America. And then also his entire work prior to 100 of solid was reinterpreted as that. And that was amazing, right? Because he really operated uh, this wonderful transformation in his imagination. And then he started to produce that novel and he surrounded himself by people who were also partisans of this new Latin American novel movement, right? Including Fuentes and Donoso and other critics like Rodriguez Monegal. So, and, and at the same time, to go back to the point that you were making is that also he he changed the language, right? So uh, what is very remarkable is that for uh, for a long time Garcia Marquez was really struggling with writing fiction in the way that he wanted. So uh, the Leaf Storm, his first novel, no one writes no one writes to the coronel in Evil Hour uh, are are novels in which he's using a very um, succinct economic language, especially in Evil Hour and No One Writes to the Coronel, a language that is very close to that of Hemingway. Uh, so he was really trying to write with very straight, precise, concise uh, sentences. And and he was, you know, he was happy about that, but at the same time he was frustrated because he wanted to do other things, right? And, and he found a way to do that in his journalism, what is really quite remarkable is that the best literary writing of Garcia Marquez before uh, *One Day of Solitude* is also is also present in his journalism in the late 1950s, in which he was writing about current events in Venezuela and in Latin America, you know, and he was using this literary style mixed with journalism, and that was part of actually a very interesting trend going on it's called new journalism in which you mix literature with um journalism and you read some of his uh articles some of his reportages and they're deeply literary yeah so then what happened is that when he started writing 100 of solitude he's he merged both uh, right so he wanted to use the language of hemingway which is still there uh, a little bit but also mix it with this more flamboyant literary language that he was actually using in his journalism. And the result is uh, 100 of Solitude. He really found uh, a style, uh, a language that he really wanted to use that also complied with the requirements of what a successful new Latin American novel should be. See, And that was a very big discovery for him, and he was really happy about that. And of course, once the novel was released, um, uh, many critics praised praise it immediately as a, as a great work of the new Latin American literature, what later on uh, was relabeled as the Latin American boom uh, in literature. Now, notwithstanding all the luck and success, there have also been critiques of the novel. As you've said in your book, Macondism, which is a view of Latin America, is undeveloped and with which the novel is said to have propagated. And there have been various important detractors whose names you mentioned, and they've called it overvalued and said that its frothy Baroque prose is unreadable. Despite this, its success continues. Tell us about this phenomenon, about all the critiques that it received, and yet the fact that it continued to be a success, a roaring success. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, that's, that's also a very... Uh, important point uh, because 
when we're thinking about classics, we tend to think about classics as works that re- that are mm, that receive kind of a, a general um, positive uh, reaction to them. And when I was doing my research, I I, I was struck by because I was certainly not just working on 100 of Solids, I was also reading literature about other classics. And something that was really striking to me was to find out how many um, critics of Shakespeare are there, there have been, and, and you know, some of them are still uh, up and running, so writing nasty things about uh, Shakespeare, right? So, and I'm, I'm not talking about just ordinary readers. I'm also talking about very important and, and even classic authors such as Voltaire, the 18th century French philosopher. He wrote uh, very critical um, texts about Shakespeare. Um, also Tolstoy, the, the Russian, the 19th century Russian writer, wrote an entire book uh, trashing, criticizing Shakespeare's uh, Works. Virginia Woolf, the the famous uh, 20th century modernist uh, writer, also had, you know, some some uh, criticism of um, of uh, Shakespeare, right? So if you actually then think about it, uh, then Shakespeare also has a really a distinguished uh, history of critics, and that was for me a really interesting finding because when I was uh, doing the research, I was certainly uh, coming across. Um, wonderful praise for the novel, right? So in saying that One Day of Solitude was a masterful work and uh, an unparalleled success and an outstanding piece of fiction. But at the same time, I was also coming across a a lot of criticism and I wasn't sure how to um, make sense of that until I realized that these were not just uh, single individuals at a particular moment, but I was also seeing a pattern in different cultures, in different nations, in different languages, in different periods, by different kinds of publics, right? So then I realized that there was also there is also a social pattern right, that helps a book to become a classic, which is criticism, or what I call entrenched criticism. And that's very important. That was a very important uh, finding in uh, in my book, right? That entrenched criticism is also a very important is also a very important uh, pattern in the making of classic books, right? So, you know, to, to put it simply, you know, the, there is no better publicity than bad publicity, and that also helps a book to become uh, really important over time. Another pattern. So, so I just talk about the. The, uh, the 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 important uh, pattern of criticism, but there are other patterns that are also really crucial, such as, for instance, uh, lived experience. So something that we also do with the classics is to connect them to our life, uh, like everyday experiences, right? So you read the book or you have heard of the book and then you find a connection between the book and something's happening to you. And that's precisely what happened to me when I started my research, which was to connect my experience of something that I read in the novel, The Rain in Macondo, to something that was occurring to me uh, real time uh, in Cambridge. And then another thing that was very important is the pattern of artistic commensuration. In other words, comparing this work to other works of art, 
So then you establish that comparison to say, okay, which one is better? Right? So that is also a pattern to compare one of solids to other classics to the works of art. And then another also interesting pattern is that of universalization, right? Which is that there's a tendency to think about books that are classics or books that are somehow universal. They speak to this interesting concept of universal human nature. And that has also happened to One of Solitude. It's been transformed into a book that uh, that cultural brokers say that you know, has that connection to human nature you know as a sociologist you know and historian i don't believe in a universal human nature but for me what is really interesting is to see how that is also a pattern by which books and works of art are larger turn into classics uh -huh. okay now finally let's end by talking about your writing about this book and the multitudinous references and sources you have deployed and the years it took you to glean this wealth of information. And you're also curating an exhibition of Garcia Marquez at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin. So all this is probably, all you know, your research on the book has probably led you to this curating activity as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Mini. You're right. So this is actually a book for which I was using uh, multiple sources precisely because I was there at the beginning. I didn't want to rely on secondary sources. I wanted to go to the primary sources. And for the first part of the book, I was using sources from Garcia Marquez's uh, personal archives at the Harry Ramson Center, which is this amazing cultural institution, a museum, a research center, and also an archive that keeps the archives uh, of and, and works of art of many important artists of the last you know, like 500 years. And actually, they also have uh, uh, items from previous uh, epochs. So so they bought the archives of Garcia Marquez and they have made them available to uh, researchers. And I was one of the lucky uh, researchers who got to um, receive a fellowship uh, from the Ramson Center through the Mellon Foundation and then work on the archives of Garcia Marquez. And I did a lot of interesting findings to the point that when I got to the Ramson Center, I thought the book was already written. I had already written most of the book, and then I realized that I had to rewrite um, most of it so to align with many of the findings. And that's the moment when I realized that many of the secondary sources were reproducing some of these legends and myths. And then, um, and then for the second part of the book, I really took advantage of uh, Harvard University's outstanding um, book and uh, collection and uh, so I was able to dig dig really uh, deep into uh, from the 19, 1967 up until now so uh, find as many references to the novel as possible to f to collect all this kind of big data uh, database of references to the novel. So then I was able to find uh, these uh, these patterns, right? And and of course, then I also went online and then I looked at you know, all kinds of uh, source of inf sources of information. So in that, because I really want to produce this. Uh, texture, right? So I really wanted to uh, uh, give a sense to my to the readers in the book of the the breadth and 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 
of references to the novel across uh, so many different audiences and places and countries. So to really show this process of global consecration, right? And then to to my surprise, to my happy surprise, uh, I was also writing uh, articles to precisely um, share some of the findings in my research with uh, uh, non-academic audiences. Uh, so pieces for the New Yorker, so for the New York Times, the Atlantic, El País in Spain, and then. And, you know, the Ramson Center also invited me to um, curate the first exhibition of Garcia Marquez's work with the archives. And that was a wonderful experience. So uh, it was also a way of conveying some of the findings in the book uh, to uh, in a different way and to broader uh, audiences. And that was a wonderful experience. So the exhibition is still open and, and until uh, January 2nd. And I certainly invite um, listeners to go to Austin if they can before January 2nd. And if not, then also uh, Mexico City in June of uh, 2022, the exhibition would open in Mexico City. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Alvaro, for your time and for telling us all about this book. And I hope your book as well finds the same kind of resonance that 100 Years of Solitude has done. (laughs) Thank you so much, Mini. It has been a real pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thank you so much. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.